0: Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to the podcast. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and WellStartHealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a safe and succulent life. So I cannot overstate the importance of today's guest's work. His name is Dr. Stephen Porges, and if you have heard about him, You are impressed. And if you haven't heard about him, you are in for a mind-blowing treat. For my money, his polyvagal theory has done more to improve our ability to heal ourselves and others and to grow and thrive as individuals and and as a civilization than any other scientific breakthrough of the past 50 years. It's paradigm shifting in its advances over prior understandings of the human nervous system, our psychology and how we experience states like well-being, happiness, love, fear, depression, anxiety, stress. And unlike a lot of theories, uh, this is incredibly practical and applicable to our everyday lives. Dr. Porges is a psychiatrist and researcher, and his scholarly contributions include work in the following fields, hang on to your hats for this list, anesthesiology, biomedical engineering, critical care medicine, ergonomics, exercise physiology, gerontology, neurology, neuroscience, obstetrics, pediatrics, psychiatry, psychology, psychometrics, space medicine, and substance abuse. And his polyvagal theory could easily have gotten lost in that staggering, eclectic body of work. And for us laypeople, here's how he describes the polyvagal theory on his own website. It, quote, links the evolution of the mammalian autonomous nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavior problems and psychiatric disorders. Say what? (laughs) So I don't want to spoil the interview for you by giving you the full theory here, but I'm going to give you a teaser and then a brief introduction. So here's the teaser. What I was able to do for clients after studying polyvagal theory and learning, practicing, and developing coaching methodologies based on its principles include the following. I can now help clients understand their bewildering impulses to eat unhealthy food. I can assist them in moving out of stuck, And hopeless states. I can empower them with simple daily exercise to unwind years and sometimes decades of trauma that seemed intractable. I can show them that their emotional roller coasters of rage, depression, anxiety are perfectly understandable and have been life saving, allowing them to gently explore other more appropriate responses to life in the present. I can help them escape from the limitations of the cognitive behavioral model of human functioning and find peace within their existing thought patterns and guide them to forge new behaviors, new habits and new paths in a profound and precious sense of safety. Okay, so what exactly is the polyvagal theory? So I'm going to contrast it with what I learned in graduate school when I was getting a doctorate in health studies, studying stress and the stress response and how to deal with stress. So what I learned was that there are two systems in the body, both part of the autonomic nervous system. There is essentially fight or flight or relax. It's kind of an on-off switch. And fight or flight. Is the uh, sympathetic nervous system And it amps us up and it gets us ready To like run away from predators From saber-toothed tigers Or to lift cars off of infants uh, Or, you know, to, to fight if we're cornered And I learned that this is bad because in our modern world, we don't really have those kinds of stressors much anymore. And so it's just sort of this, this vestigial response. And when we think incorrectly and we get stressed out by things like alarm clocks, traffic jams, emails, um, ambiguous looks from strangers, then we're living in this constant state of stress. And the important thing is to de-stress by invoking the other half, the parasympathetic nervous system, which we can do through breathing, and most importantly, through reconceptualizing those stressors. So simply to recognize, oh, the traffic isn't a stressor. And how silly of me to think that it was, you know, it's this artifact of our brains. And once we realize it, once we, we stop making these mistakes, oh, it's just an email. Am I really in danger here? No, I'm not. There's no point in my body to get involved. We can manage stress. What we're going to discuss on this podcast, the polyvagal theory, says that things are not so simple and they're not so black and white. So there's a concept in biology of default hierarchies. And the idea is that most organisms, and especially very complex organisms like mammals and uh, primates and humans, um, that we have multiple ways of dealing with things that will happen in our lives. Things that potentially could kill us, things that are potential opportunities. We don't just have one trick. And we have evolved better and better strategies over time, or more and more nuanced and complex strategies over time, as we've evolved from less complex into more complex organisms. And the default hierarchy for dealing with potentially dangerous situations is as follows. As mammals, social animals, we have a social engagement system. So if you think about it, the most likely threat to us doesn't come from saber-toothed tigers. It comes from other members of our own species. And so to show them that we're not a threat, we'll smile. We will extend an open hand. We will engage in... Um, you know, obsequious behaviors, we will laugh, we will show them that we are no threat. Uh, If someone makes a dominance display, much of the time we will accommodate and we want to show other people that we are safe to be around and that they can feel safe around us. If that doesn't work, we fall back on an older system, which is also in reptiles. Amphibians and bony fish. And that's the sympathetic nervous system that we talked about that uh, allows us to do the fight or flight response that mobilizes us. So it's not necessarily a response to stress or a negative. It's simply a a thing that mobilizes the body. And we can have mobilization along with social engagement. So when we're playing sports or playing of anything, when we're actively engaged with other people and feeling safe while we're doing it, both of those systems are online, social engagement and uh, sympathetic nervous system mobilization. So the question isn't, is the sympathetic nervous system on? And if it is, is that a bad thing? But is the sympathetic nervous system on concomitant with social engagement or with fear? Now, if neither of those work, and this is especially the case in people who have experienced childhood trauma or trauma of any kind, whether acute through an accident, through an event in war, some sort of PTSD event, or through neglect, or through repeated sort of micro traumas of not having felt safe. We also have a system that we share with cartilaginous fish and jawless fish that's also moderated by the vagus nerve. He claims there's three different pathways of the vagus nerve, which is why there's this polyvagal, multivagal. And what he calls this is the immobility or shutdown. So this is the animal in the jaws of death, no chance to run away, no chance to fight because the thing is much bigger or stronger than us. No opportunity for social engagement. And so our best odds at that point is basically to play dead, to become limp, unresponsive, dissociated from our bodies, and wait for the thing to pass. And the key insight that we get into in the interview is, is that this is not a state that we choose, and we have absolutely no conscious control over which neurological state we happen to find ourselves in. So to give people various psychological, cognitive strategies to get out of a state is completely missing the point and extremely disempowering and frustrating. So I think that's enough of an intro to help you jump right into the conversation. And before we do, a couple of quick Things First of all, Josh Lajani and I are holding a retreat, a small group, maybe 10, 12 people maximum in person, two and a half day retreat in North Carolina. Think of it as an immersive experience, an intensely casual get together where we're going to explore healthy, plant based, movement oriented living. It's for folks who are complete newbies to this way of life. It's also for people who've been doing it for a long time and just want more of a tribe, want a refresher course, want to get inspired, and are looking for either a reset or a kind of a turbo boost to to your life and to the health habits that underlie it. The dates are November 14th through 17th for this first one. We're also planning a second retreat in New Orleans in March. To find out more, go to sick2fit, and that's the number two, sick2fit.com slash retreat. Second quick thing is coach training starts again in November. And if you want to learn how to be a wicked effective wellness coach, health coach, check us out at wellstartcoach.com. All right, let's get right to it. Without further ado. Dr. Stephen Porges, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's going to be an interesting hour. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, and I'll say, you know, sort of as, as a, an introduction that the work that you have been developing over the past, gosh, 25 years, I think you pu- you first published in 94, hmm. um, so 20, 25 years, um, has probably been the, the single most important uh, aspect of the coaching that I do, the single biggest thing that I've read, at least in the last 10 years, that has helped me be a, the kind of coach who mm. actually helps people. So I, I want I want to thank you for that and just kind of do that as a sort of a, a <laughs> teaser, like what we're what we're going to get into today.
1: Well, thank you. I'm a little bit flat and not little. I'm flattered by those comments and also trying to kind of understand the path of of how these ideas are useful within the world of coaching. And In a sense, polyvagal theory is giving a map of what it is to be a human being, and I guess being a coach is uh, helping people navigate through that uh, along that those roads of living.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think there's you know in in some ways we're like therapists, but mm-hmm. we we aren't doing certain things, and we're not looking at the past so much as um, helping people achieve tangible things in the in you know in their futures. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what I wanted to do is kind of like sort of autobiographically um, give you the holes in my background and in my practice that polyvagal Mm -hmm. theory filled for me. Um, And so we can sort of unpack in real time so that people who are watching can understand like why they can't stop eating donuts when they don't want to eat donuts, why they are having trouble getting up in the morning and going for a run when they've said that they want to go for a run. Um, So the first thing I hear from people who come to me for for coaching or people in, you know, in, in groups is, well, I just I don't have enough discipline. I just I just don't want it bad enough. And then because and they're like because they, they feel like they should want to make this change, whatever it is, and they find themselves failing and the maps that they have drawn for themselves, the only explanation is that there's something wrong with me. So I wonder if if that's a good sort of entree into the theory.
1: I think we can start there, because what you're really saying is the people that are that you're dealing with are in states of defense. And they're just not in a sense. They're self-evaluative all the time, chronically evaluative, and they're failing on those uh, the markers of that evaluation. So Mm. from a polyvagal perspective, their body is in a state of defense, Now, when we get into a state of defense, our autonomic nervous system shifts, we become mobilized, we become more numb to our body, and we really lose one of the major attributes of what it is to be a human, and that's the ability to co-regulate our biophysiological state to calm down or to feel safe. Mm -hmm. So everything we're going to talk about during this hour is about state regulation. And so when you talk about people eating donuts, what are they eating donuts for? People will say, well, I like the taste. But really they're saying, I need to eat this because it makes me feel better. Mm. And even though there's a, uh, let's say, a sugar hit where they might enjoy the intake, but then they is then start losing their ability to control their behavior because they, they're having a glucose surge. So even though they know that, their body is saying, Help me out, I'm having trouble regulating. And what we learned from polyvagal theory is that the magic is in the ability to give up defenses and to be have the opportunity to co-regulate with other people. So the people who have to be eating the donuts or who are the exercise fanatics or the ones who don't want to get out of bed, when you go beyond the initial surface of what these symptoms or features are, they're not comfortable in their relationships with other people. And the magic about being a mammal is the magic about co-regulating, feeling safe in the arms of another, having moments of shared intimacy, which are really the ability to not be defensive while sitting still. And the other thing that we will probably also talk about is whether or not people feel comfortable in the state of stillness. Can they just sit there? Or do they mm. immediately say, "I can't sit there. I got to do something." Mm. And in a way, you're talking about people who feel they have to do something, and which means they can't even be in their body, feel their body, respect what their body is telling them, and to just experience a sense of being. Mm.
0: So, wh- one thing that I um, I tell my clients is the very often. They feel like I should be able to drive the car. I should be able to to step on the gas and the brakes and turn the steering wheel, but they're in the back seat.
1: Yeah, but what you're saying, and it's a beautiful analogy, um, or is it a metaphor? I'm not sure in this case, (laughs) but you're treating the body as if it is a machine. And that's what they're saying. They're saying the body should follow these instructions, but it's not. And part of what polyvagal theory tells us Is that there's a wisdom in our body it's telling us something and what it's Mm. pleading it's pleading to be heard to be witnessed and once it's witnessed, its needs changes. This Mm. is the paradox so once you are respectful of your body and you listen to it it gives up its neediness Mm. It becomes available and this goes into this other dimension I want you to think about in terms of a continuum of how people function are they accessible to each other or are they vulnerable? So we basically live along a continuum of accessibility and vulnerability. And what you're talking, the people that you are coaching or many of the people who are in the coaching world are working with are people who feel that they are vulnerable and not accessible. And what does accessibility mean? It means that the vulnerability becomes irrelevant. We are always vulnerable, but if we always focus on that, we can never be accessible. And when we're not accessible, we can't have relationships and we can't be truly a mammal, which mm-hmm. is this capacity to co-regulate.
0: Gotcha. So um, I'm going to try to you know, be a proxy for my for my listeners. But I'm also fairly ignorant myself. So if this isn't just play acting, when you say co-regulation with others, like mm-hmm. get, what's an example of
1: that? Well, when you come into the world as an infant, You can't regulate yourself. You can't maintain body temperature. You need to have food. You need to be comforted. Um, So our initial archetype or prototype of co-regulation is a mother with a baby, but we never give that up. Our nervous system always requires that as do many, many other mammals. Mammals, unlike reptiles need others to be around. So if we ask people, what is their worst fear? It's always going to be a metaphor of isolation, marginalization. And then what is it the other th- people will use terms like no one listens to me, no one sees me, no one takes me seriously. And these are all manifestations of being marginalized.
0: Mm. So so one, one way that the polyvagal theory plays out is through an evolutionary lens. The yeah. idea that, right, like you're a reptile, you can sit on the rock, you can be quiet, you don't need anybody else, but a mammal or especially a human who's ostracized from the tribe can't yeah. survive. So so any sort of marginalization or isolation or even like disapproval, oh, right, yeah. or criticism, like I can, you know, I can go from a, a, criti- a, a critical comment to an email in an email to me to I'm dead in the gutter in like you know, a nanosecond.
1: Oh, yeah, but in a way... That's your body. We I mean, see so you go there. What you're saying to me is the cues or or the uh, words that are being said, even in print, trigger a mm-hmm. physiological response that's very profound. Mm-hmm. And it has with it a stream of visualizations or memories or expectations. And there's certainly things that we could say are unpleasant. And that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Right. And what, what, when I, there, there are a couple things in life that I, or that, let me deal with that actual point is. I'm an academic, you know, I've been an academic for many, many, many decades. And the academic world is defined by a basic feature, and that is it's a vulnerable world. Hmm. Everyone is evaluating each other all the time. Now, the point is, so in many ways, it's a horrible place. (laughs) If those if you live in that sense of vulnerability. But if you partition in a way, say, I understand it's a pragmatic world. That there are vulnerabilities, Uh, but in accepting that, you also have this tremendous freedom to be creative and to do something important. In a sense, to leverage your knowledge and your boldness. So the issue is to understand the boundaries of your own vulnerability and not to over, let's say, make them too much. So they're not a metaphor Mm -hmm. that I'm going to die if someone criticizes me. It's what I. I have a son. My older son is an academic now, and he had a paper that was reviewed. Uh, And I said to him, read the review and just put it away for a day or two because you'll get this reaction. Mm -hmm. The reaction is just like you said. It's a critical reaction. But as you process it over a couple of days and come back to it, you see how those comments can help you write a better paper. You can Mm -hmm. communicate with the people that didn't understand you. Because the first response of the of a critique is that they didn't understand me. So Mm -hmm. now we go back to this marginalization. It's like I've been isolated um, in solitary confinement. They don't understand me. The body Mm -hmm. goes into that bit. But if you're in a sense, I use the term polyvagal informed about your own bodily responses. You say that makes sense. Those are cues of survival to to my livelihood. Let Mm -hmm. me put this aside for a moment and let the higher brain structures play with it for a while, and let's change the narrative.
0: Well, One one of the ironies that I really love is, in a sense, we are giving our body a voice that is separate from our thinking. Like we're saying, the body has these other agendas and needs. and, And at the same time as we're separating from it, we're also then able to unify with it.
1: Well, it's not just that we unify it, we exploit it so the anxious people and i'm sure several of the people who go into life not go as coaches but go to have their lives coached are highly anxious mm-hmm. but that anxiety has served them well it's been an energy source for them their insecurity their need to move enable them to work harder be more productive so it had a positive attribute but if they start to shift their perspective of the world and they kind of give up this defensiveness, they have to restructure their narrative. meaning they have to Mm -hmm. see themselves in a different light. So what we're really saying is that people uh, exploit their body. So if you get yourself anxious, you have a lot of uh, metabolic resource. This works fine if the tasks are simple, Mm -hmm. but if the tasks are complex and creative, that mobilization is actually diverting a lot of your ability to access higher cortical structures. Mm. So our creativity is often linked to feeling safe. But our productivity in much of the world that we're in is not linked to feeling safe, it's linked to moving faster.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. OK, so but when, when I have this thought of like, OK, critical email dead in the gutter, like what I was trained was that that's a cognitive problem that I have to you know, that I'm just thinking wrong and I have to like, you know, be more bold and understand that it's their issue or what, whatever the, the mindset shift I have to make or that I'm authorizing. And, yeah, what, what I the gift that I got from your work is that there's there's something going on that I have zero control over.
1: Well, you have control over how you use the information in your narrative. So the point is that you have no control at least initially about your bodily reaction. Mm. But you have a lot of control about what you do with that bodily reaction. You can mm-hmm. say, well, you know, it's very understandable. The person is basically threatening my sense of who I am. And that's a, that's a powerful metaphor to who I to my body. Mm. My body is just saying this is dangerous. I shouldn't be here. So you process that and now it's a bottom up at that stage. Now, what you do with the bottom up is a top down reflection. And you say, well, uh, this is interesting. I'm reacting to it. I understand why I'm reacting to it. I have some choices I can make. Either I can uh, understand that though my reaction to it is going to be transitory. It's like I'll put the paper aside for a day and then it will be gone. And when I look at the review, well, it's going to be helpful. So I learned that there's a dissipation of some of these reactions. I learned what's incompatible with those reactions. And that would be like visualizations of very positive things are going to make those physiological feelings incompatible because polyvagal theory tells you about the hierarchy that if Mm. you have feelings of safety, you can't have feelings of threat. They just dissipate. So visualizations of a loved one of a child of a spouse, or a wonderful experience that you've had with others, basically downregulates those visceral feelings. So you learn, in a sense, a script that you can deal with. So it's not merely a cognitive behavioral therapy. It starts off with the respect that our body reacts to cues. That's what our body evolved to do. We 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 have a lot of uh, structures in our brain that we inherited from more primitive vertebrates, and we are reacting to that. The question is what we do with that information. Do we say that that information is right and we need to, in a sense, get the hell out of here? And this is what happens to people. Or do we say, I understand while I'm reacting, can I understand also that there's a time course and things will feel better? Do I take my body and go into a quieter place? Do I listen to music? Do I talk to a friend? Do I have a social interaction with another person? Uh, And what happens with many people who are coming in for coaching is what they'll do is they may eat They (laughs) may say, I feel this way, I'll start eating. And what they're doing while they're eating is they're using all the structures that are used in social interaction. So they're trying to do it through ingestion and not through facial expressivity with another person or listening or reciprocal talking. And it's a very inefficient way of regulating state but social behavior is a much more positive one. So we learn that we feel upset. We tend to gravitate to someone who functionally witnesses us, but here's the real problem. Most people are not very good at witnessing. Hmm. They evaluate what's being told to them, and they feel if they're listening to it, it's their responsibility to fix it. And that's not why people tell you things. They don't want it fixed. They want it witnessed and respected that you had those feelings. And that is something that our culture is really very poor with. So, when something is bothering you, you tell someone, there's really no expectation for the person to fix it and get upset. The expectation is the person is there comforting you, enabling you to feel better, to process the information, and to rewrite your narrative. But if your narrative now disrupts that person as you tell the story, you don't have a top down calming experience. It doesn't work,
0: right? You've just, just you've tool. just upset them.
1: <laughs> or, yeah, or, that's, uh, you've... that's right. Why would I tell someone my my problems or what happened to me if I'm going to make them if I'm going to hurt them? Why would I do that? Hmm. And, and that is really where the bad interactions occur, where we in a sense may appear to be complaining when all we want to do is be witness, we just want to be heard. And we don't want anyone to fix it. We just want to say, Oh, how are you, are you okay now? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. Nothing. Right.
0: right. So, you know, to, but to take that that example of so I get the upsetting email and yeah, I immediately want to eat, right? And yeah. so so the more I do that in my life, the more that becomes my conditioned response, then I discover that this idea of these these cognitive, you know, dysfunctional thoughts. And so now I'm I'm bad or broken or wrong. And and the the, polyvagal theory gave me was this molecule between me and the thoughts like, okay, this is a physical reaction that I didn't choose. It's a very natural one. Yeah. And, and it's it's now it's now potentially maladaptive. It's it's now is not serving me, and so now I get to a, apply these cognitive techniques in a much more gentle and kind well, way to myself.
1: Yeah. Well, the first point is really that behavior's not bad. Behavior's behavior, and reactions are, tend to be adaptive, at least in the short term. But they may appear to be more, let's say, uh, less adaptive. I was going to use the word pathological, but we don't really mean that, but less adaptive if we get kind of locked into a, a script of always reacting defensively. Uh, the other important point is to think in a different way. We normally have been taught to think in terms of input, output, stimulus, response, SR relationships, and even cognitive behavioral therapy is based upon those principles. But what polyvagal theory says is don't think so simplistically. That's not the way it goes. That's not how we experience life. We really experience life as a SOR uh, model or stimulus organismic state response. And for those of you who, who took courses in psychology, the physiological state is our intervening variable. It determines what the stimulus will create as a response. So the same stimulus in one physiological state produces a fine behavior. In another one, it's reactivity. So depending upon how we feel, and the example with your email would be is if you're with a group of friends and you feel really supported and you read that email, it may just kind of like float off of you. Mm. But if you're by yourself and you start ruminating and thinking about it, you feel your vulnerability. So you don't have that co-regulatory capacity or um, attribute of the other person in your life, and so your physiology now becomes more reactive. Right.
0: So, um, I think this might be a good time to kind of go go into some of the the pillars of the theory themselves, because this this idea that our state or the organismic state determines things, and that we have we can have influence on the state, but the state as it is is making choices for us.
1: Well, let's reframe that and say that in different physiological states, we have different uh, emergent properties. We have a a different probability of certain behaviors to occur, not that they're causal. So if I'm in a state of sympathetic activation, highly mobilized, um, uh, people might feel it as a, a pervasive feeling of anxiety. Their muscles might be tense. It doesn't mean they're going to jump at someone, but if certain cues occur, They're more likely to jump on someone and be reactive Mm -hmm. to misinterpret cues because they're less their nervous system has tuned. It has been tuned to detect neutrality of facial expression and vocalizations as negative. So it's like when you're in a state of defense mobilization, you're more likely to uh, detect cues that are not dangerous, but your body will react to them as if they were dangerous. And the example for most of you will be that you you have this interaction with someone very close to you. They're not having a good day. And so they're a little bit upset. And now you feel a little bit vulnerable and your face loses its positive affect. And they get angry at you and say, why are you scowling at me? Or Why are you having that negative look at me? And all you're doing is reacting to the, um, the their behavior near you, which has basically uh, said, you better be careful. So rather than being embracing and supportive, you've now reacted to their shifts in state and they have detected that as if you're hurting them. Mm-hmm. And and that becomes an argument because when you're in that type of state, you can only detect the negative attributes, not the positive. Mm-hmm. So it, it
0: becomes this filter in the same way that we might have a filter. When my refrigerator starts making noise, I start seeing appliance ads. Okay. That, that, that the state that I'm in based on this assessment, that's not yeah. a that's not a conscious assessment of how yeah. safe is my
1: organism? Yeah. Right. This is the neuroception. Your nervous system is making evaluations and background of all the sensory cues coming in and saying, uh, am I safe? Am I not safe? And if I'm not safe, is it merely dangerous or is it life threatening? and if it's life-threatening mm-hmm. maybe i'll just totally shut down and disappear and if it's dangerous mm-hmm. i'll just get mobilized and have a low threshold to fight or flee but if it's safe maybe i'll be expressive and warm and supportive to others mm-hmm.
0: Right. So that, that, um, in and of itself, the three options as opposed to the two blew yeah. my mind because I studied, uh, stress management. That was my, my dissertation in 1999 was about stress. And the model that I learned was it's like a light switch. You've, you're either amped up or you're suppressed and the suppress, you know, the, the, Parasympathetic, the one that makes you calm, is the yeah. good guy, and the sympathetic, like we have it, because a long time ago we had to fight saber toothed tigers, but it's essentially useless um, now.
1: Well, it's kind of I'm going to say naive. I was going to use the word foolish, but I don't want to be so negative <laughs> because it may trigger some evaluative feelings. Um, but the issue is, sympathetic nervous system is something we love. We love the energy it gives us. We love the enthusiasm, we enjoy the arousal from it. It's not all negative. The part of what fight and flight as being linked into uh, sympathetics or uh, cortisol, HPA axis being synonymous with stress was a misunderstanding of how these systems work. They're not really stress or fight flight systems. They're systems of movement, of exuberance. They're good stuff, but they have to be in a sense constrained by what I call a social engagement system, meaning cues of another, facial expressivity, vocalizations. So if you watch people when they play, when do they get into fights? They get into Mm. fights when they lose the ability to to be reciprocal in their interaction. So they'll push someone and walk away, as opposed to push someone down to the ground and then reach out, look at them and say, are you okay, and lift them up. But the latter is, you know, you could, you, nothing can happen to you. You can really be aggressive. But if you walk away from someone, they're going to take this as a cue of aggressiveness and their body will shift states. The other part of what we misunderstood is that there is an ancient uh, parasympathetic pathway, an ancient pathway of the vagus, which we inherited from uh, reptiles because one of the major defense systems of a reptile is to immobilize. And when Mm -hmm. they immobilize, you know, they'll stop breathing for a period of time and they may defecate to reduce the metabolic demand. And, of course, we see this even in humans. You see people passing out and you see people, in a sense, defecating in fear. That's parasympathetic. It's not sympathetic. The vulnerability to this shutting down, ironically, is when the sympathetic nervous system doesn't serve to get us the hell out of dangerous situations. So it's like through restraint and physical size, differential, uh, physical abuse, the body starts to shut down. And the irony now is our body, at least the autonomic nervous system in our body, is hierarchically organized. And what that means is that the newer circuits uh, inhibit the older ones from going into defense. So our new uh, mammalian myelinated vagal circuit that's linked to facial expressivity, Uh, Intonation of voice keeps our sympathetics and the older vagal circuit serving us for homeostatic function keeps them out of defense. That's why healthy people have certain uh, parameters of vagal regulation. And that's why socially connected people are healthier because it keeps their autonomic nervous system in States mm-hmm. that support health growth and restoration.
0: Right. In other words, they're not, they're not, um, spending all their budget on the on military.
1: Well, right? yes. <laughs> the, the one that I used to like was star Trek and where where they said, you know, the defense shields are eating up all our energy mm-hmm. and functionally this is how humans work as well. So when they're in States of defense, Uh, It's eating up their metabolic resources and they and it's not an efficient way. It's metabolically costly to them and it interferes with their health. So the irony is when we're accessible, when we have the capacity to feel safe with others, the autonomic nervous system can do its job. It can support the homeostatic processes of health. And when we are more defensive autonomically, we have all those comorbidities Including gut problems, irritable bowel problems, um, anxiety, so you start getting this cluster of, of mental health and physical health problems that were viewed as if they were unrelated, but it 's really your autonomic nervous system shifting into states of defense, and these are merely the emergent properties
0: right so a lot of the people who who come to me for coaching tend to be morbidly obese, so 100 pounds or more overweight. Yeah. And, you know, as, as a, my colleague, Josh Lajani, who used to weigh four hundred and twenty pounds and lost two hundred and thirty of them, um, it's like to say, like, you don't get to be that fat by just because you like Burger King, right, that, that almost all of them we discover or will, will let me know that they had trauma. In yeah, their childhood, yeah. the kind that you mentioned, where there's the fight or flight did not work because they were being overpowered or restrained. Mm-hmm. Um, you have your story of of, of your, your freak out in the MRI, right? I used to be a school teacher, so we would take the hyperactive kids and like force them to sit down. Like, yeah. you know, terrible things that I'm I'm ashamed of. And uh, now
1: well, it's because we interpreted all behavior as intentional. And that's where we have to stop. We have to say that our behavior is in response, often in response to our physiological state, and it tends to be more reflexive than intentional.
2: Mm.
0: Right. So so that when uh, when people understand that the thing that happened to them is affecting what they can do when they get that email, like it, it, it affects how they see the world, it affects when they when they're in traffic how they interpret traffic as a personal affront, as a danger, as a as a danger, that that, that, some, that, that one of the you know, one of the saddest parts of the theory for me is that it's hard to get out of what you call collapse or dissociation or fold. That mammals yeah. don't really have a, an easy way to bounce back from a trauma like that.
1: There's a real reason for for that. And I had developed this acoustic intervention. It's basically uh, uses vocal music, but computer alters it. So you really have the essence of safety coming out in vocal cues, just like a mother's lullaby. <laughs> and it was working great with autistic and with children. Uh, they became many of them. We become spontaneously social and engaging auditory hypersensitivities were greatly reduced. And then we start moving it into the world of trauma. And this was extraordinarily interesting because some of the people you know, basically, uh, it had miraculous effects. But with others, they would have an initial reaction, which was, oh, I feel safe. And then there'd be a rebound from that. Hmm. And, it, and the rebound was, if I'm safe, my body's going to be vulnerable. So they're now do, using, in a sense, top-down mechanisms. were really saying to them, in a way... I better get the hell out of here because this is dangerous. So if I calm down and I allow myself to be open to others, I'm going to get hurt again. So the, the visualizations and the met higher brain structures associations with a body that was now safe and calm was now very reactive and defensive. And we see this. So when we talk about the morbidly obese who have trauma histories, we also find out with addiction. Many people who have addictions uh, have trauma histories. And the part uh, that's similar is that if their bodies start to calm down, they, they have to mobilize. So they do high-risk behaviors. They have to keep moving because if they sit still, they're going to be vulnerable. And this is what we start to learn from the acoustic intervention. called the, It's called the Safe and Sound Protocol. And now we have trauma therapists who are working with it in, in a way that enables people to learn about their body responses by titration, doing it much slower, allowing them to rather than going through five, one hour sessions uh, to, on five sequential days, it may take them two or three weeks to go mm-hmm. through a few minutes and let their body literally resolve uh, its own reactivity with first, they become aware of it. Now the interesting part is in the normal life of most of these clients when their body has that reaction, the immediate thing they do is attribute the causality to the person in front of them. So they feel, but with the music, they know it's not the person in front of them. So it's a very, um, it's a very educational way to learn about one's own body's reactivity. Mm-hmm. The, the other point I wanted to bring up is that the act of ingesting to regulate state is just very inefficient. It's using the same sensory and motor components that we use in social behavior. So when we use the muscles of the face and we uh, vocalize the sucking, swallowing, and breathing, use the same mechanism. So when babies who come into this world have difficulties in suck, swallow, and breathe, those are the same individuals when they get older who have social engagement, behavioral problems. Now, the interesting part is that ingestive behaviors early in life, it happens to be a major pathway for regulating physiological state. But when people, not when people, when babies even get to the age of six months, the social behavior of the mother making eye contact and engaging is more powerful than the food. Mm. So, so we, we can see in infants that acknowledgement or witnessing or reciprocity becomes the, the most powerful variables of co-regulating over and above ingestion or feeding. And what's happened with the morbidly obese is they didn't have that. They didn't have states of trust and safety. And the only pathway they had for regulating state was through ingestion. But ingestion just is not that efficient a pathway.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and then I guess when you combine it with you know the, the the aspects of our culture that are i would say antithetical to you know human growth and development including isolation competition and the artificial foodstuffs that were are oh. that were given it's it's hard to it's you know you're facing something very large when you when you try to stop eating your donuts
1: right and i mean the, the interesting thing is, we've kind of grown up with a belief that uh, a nutritionist can create a cocktail and that's all we need. But ingestion is a much more complicated behavior. It requires chewing, a degree of sucking. It's a whole oral motor exercise, it's a neural exercise that helps us calm down. That's kind of missing in our understanding. We think of nutrients, we don't think of the ingestive pathway as being an important component of our state regulation. I would basically uh, focus on one major point. Everything about our lives is about our ability to regulate our state. And everything I think about what coaching is about is about helping people regulate their state. Yeah. And, And they can never regulate their state if they're bathed in a sense of shame, blame, or failed evaluation. Meaning that if they're in that state, that's a state of defense and you're not going to get anywhere in a state of defense that has to be moved. And the cues to get out of that are cues of love and trust. And this is where the vocalizations come in. This is where facial expressivity, this is where reciprocal behaviors with others. So even something as simple as team sports is mobilization with facial expressivity. It's where Mm. we move. Dancing is moving with, with social engagement behaviors. Uh, Even something as mechanical as drum circles, where people are listening, but they're also looking. Mm. They're doing a lot of social referencing. Those are neural exercises. I think as a culture, what we did is we forgot how to play, and we forgot how to socially interact. And if we think in terms of the educational model, play is kicked out of it because it gets in the way, takes time up. And no one talks about having opportunities to allow social interactions to evolve, to enable co-regulation. And if they could do that within the educational model, a lot of the disruptive behaviors would just disappear.
0: Mm. And I was uh, you know, sh- shocked a little bit by a statement you made in uh, one of the chapters in the pocket guide to the polyvagal theory about our technology landscape is yeah. We, the, the people who are least socially adept right mm-hmm. the, the you know the founders of these technology companies yeah. are the ones creating the world that we are now all living in the, one, the, yeah. the world that they're comfortable in where we're staring at screens and we're act, interacting with pixels as opposed to humans
1: yeah now the beauty let's let's talk without getting panicked about that <laughs> and the issue is that we're a very fluid uh Organism where we're, we're, there's a lot of plasticity in us. So what that technology has created is really putting many many people Who are on autism spectrum, which is now becoming more of a norm uh, It means that you can function in this world without direct face-to-face contact and you can be quote Successful meaning you can earn a lot of money. You can have a degree of visibility and, and rewards but your body's going to know the difference the body's not going to feel, in a sense, welcomed and successful. Uh, but the landscape is really interesting because I view it as uh, a misunderstanding of what it is to be a human, that we're prioritizing cognitive function, which is useful, but we're prioritizing it at the expense of what it is, uh, in a sense, the evolutionary motivation or quest of being a human being, which is to be safe in the arms of another.
2: Mm.
1: And I I often modify that to say in the arms of another appropriate mammal, because what we find out is that many people who have histories of trauma are very comfortable and feel very safe with their pets. Mm. And, And they feel that reciprocity and that groundedness, but their bodies are too fearful or too reactively fearful to venture out with another person and we'll won't trust. The body will not trust another.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So one, one of the things that I've been wondering slash struggling with since discovering polyvagal theory is sort of like, how, how did we survive to this point if our physiology is so vulnerable to these quakes that are hard to recover from. And the metaphor is when I, when I was I lived in London in my early 20s and I was a juggler and I used to mm. go to the, the place on Saturday where all the jugglers would go. And I learned how to pass clubs, which is yeah. you, know, you have your three and there's someone else has three and you throw them back and forth in patterns. And when I was working with the top people, I would I would pass it I would pass well. But as soon yeah. as someone with with my level of ability, the clubs would be all over the place. We get hit in the head. Like you yeah. need you needed like the system needed that co-regulation. And like so, when I think about civilization. Like if traumas happen to us, and yet for a long time people we had we had tribes or cultures or rituals that allowed us to heal. We had the you know the drumming or the singing yeah. or the chanting. Now like this society is normal to me, but we're like missing, what are we missing?
1: Okay, so when we start talking about rituals, rituals preceded religions. And what the religions brought were fear-based experiences. So they created another level of fear and awe. But the rituals, if we go back to them, which are chanting and posture shifts and bowing, all these are pathways of of, uh, port, what I, I, The term I use is uh, vagal pathways, portals to compassion. So they are basically all the uh, motor behaviors of rituals are actually stimulating vagal pathways to calm us down. So in a sense, there's an ancient knowledge that was there long ago in terms of how we breathe, how we chant, and how we move our body to calm ourselves down. And they're embedded in... I would say more modern religions, but these go back a long time. I think your intuition is correct that historically uh, humans understood how to decontaminate the stressors and the traumas that they experience through those rituals.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so so part, I mean, what we're talking about here is a social environment. And so when I'm coaching individuals, like what mm-hmm. what what resources do they have individually if they if I if I can't say, you know, go find a non-religious yeah. chanting group or, you know, go find people that you feel safe who can give you unconditional positive regard, which, you know, as a coach, like that's my aspiration. And I, it's hard. You know, I have a nervous yeah. system, too. How, how do we what do we tell well, people to do to begin to to I'll achieve that kind of social engagement? Let's
1: let's start because you you dropped the important. Piece of wisdom right there. You have a nervous system too. We all have this, so no one is above this vulnerability, and this this has to be respected because people will say they'll say to me, "But of course, you." <laughs> you <know? laughs> I said, "No, I'm very human, and I'm very vulnerable as being a human." And it's because when you understand where the vulnerabilities come, which is not necessarily your past, it has a lot to do with where you are in the present. So if I spend uh, all, if I were to continue spending time or all my time in the university setting, I would not be able to be as expressive or ex, uh, let's use this term, creative or as bold or as thoughtful as I would like to be, because I'd be responding to the constraints that come into play as we become more and more defensive. So. Uh, now, let's go into what you were really saying. What resources can we give an individual? Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the juggling, what went into my mind was not the juggling, but the parallel of playing in a wind ensemble or, or a choir, mm-hmm. where there's, where you know good players pull up others because of the interaction and the support, the facial expressivity. And what you were getting with the juggling was very clear reciprocity and if there's violation of reciprocity our body goes into defense and juggling was this perfect metaphor of reciprocity you better move in cue and so is playing music and with playing music you're exercising that social engagement system you're listening you're if it's a wind instrument you're blowing and breathing and even if it's not a wind instrument you're still breathing with the rhythms so people understand this and their body shifts state. We just don't have enough experiences in our day-to-day life of having these opportunities. Even team sports. So let's go back. What can you actually give people? You give them breathing instructions. The interesting part is, is it's as if, like, here we are, this complex, vulnerable organism, and we've just kind of discussed about the vulnerability, uh, and a lot of it we've been emphasizing is that it's not voluntary. It's our body's reaction. Well, there's a beautiful thing. There's some things that we can do that are both voluntary and involuntary. That is breathing. Breathing can be a voluntary action, but hopefully it's involuntary most of the time, or we wouldn't mm. be. Here. <laughs> but we can modify it. So what we learn from our physiology is if we extend the duration of exhale and we start even pushing down on our diaphragm when we breathe, we increase the vagal influence on our heart. So in a sense, we can induce vagal calming by just shifting our breathing pattern. And many people misunderstand it. They say take a deep breath and they will just huff and puff and they'll get more worked up. The real issue is take that breath and exhale slowly because it's doing that exhalation that the vagus can have its inhibitory Impact on the sympathetics so that can calm you down. If you mm. extend the duration of your inhalation relative to your exhalation, you're turning off the vagus. You're basically getting yourself worked up. And you can see this in people when we say they're huffing and they're puffing. What they're doing is inhaling uh, most of the time, exhaling very rapidly, and they're getting their bodies worked up. And that's fine if you're a sprinter or you're a boxer or something like that, and you want that or a shot putter you want to get that explosion mm. of, of activity, but not for social behavior mm-hmm. so,
0: so so the breath is the kind of the primary tool that's free that's available to us twenty four seven
1: yeah it, it's it's a gift you know it's kind of one of these miraculous gifts and it's been known for you know who knows how many. Thousands of years, people have done these things. Now, there are ways in which you co-op it. People call it, you know, chanting. What is chanting? It's slow exhalation. Mm. And chanting with different sounds is stimulating different aspects of that social engagement system. And once you stimulate the social engagement system, either through vocalizations or oral motor stimulation or even listening, it increases the vagal action on the heart. So these become acoustic or vocal vagal nerve stimulators. So we have these things that are built into our body, and uh, you know they're there, and people can use them to regulate their state. Um,
0: so uh, you said something in the uh, the podcast that I just listened to with Dr. Drew, um, which. I think I sort of a little bit understand, but I would love for you to to help me understand it better. You said when the brain stops getting feedback from the body, it starts self organizing.
1: Ah, okay. What what I was really saying is that the sensory uh, information from our body goes up the sensory pathway of the vagus, goes up to our brainstem and then goes up through a structure called the insula and goes to our cortex. Now, and that's where people get this word, introception, I feel my body. It's really mapped into the insula. But when people have body numbness, or they, which is really a feature of trauma, it's not being reflected in the insula, and it's not affecting the cortex. And then the cortex is doing its own self-organization. At least that's my metaphor. And I think that's where a lot of psychosis comes from. It's where people being literally ungrounded, and it's a powerful metaphor, it's really saying the signals from the body are not reaching the cortex. They're, and that when it doesn't have that feedback, it self-organizes and creates its own narrative, which doesn't necessarily map the reality of the world.
0: Right. And, and you know, as you've, you've written a lot, that we're in a very sort of cognitive, heavy society where the brain is the important thing and the body is just the thing that carries it around from place to place. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, for, for a lot of people the th- when I when I invite them as a coach to, OK, what are you feeling right now? What do you what do you, you know? So because we, you know, we know that the sensations of the body are the the substrate of experience and that everything else is sort of emergent or a metaphenomenon. Mm-hmm. From that yeah. people feel are terrified or unable to mm-hmm. go into sensation. What's what stops oh, them?
1: Well, I think it's not as simple as you're saying. You're basically saying they can or they can't, and most people can't. We have to ask the question, really, is what what is their clinical history? What's their developmental history? And what happens, what we start to find out, at least within the clinical and scientific world, is that people who have experiences of pain and trauma, they start turning off the feedback from their body. They're not feeling their body. And numbness becomes one of the common features that clinicians talk about in the world of traumatology and what they're saying. And again, if you think about people who have been, let's use the term, ritually abused or chronically sexually abused as children, they don't feel their body. And and, and in fact, many individuals who have had those experiences become promiscuous in terms of their sexual activity because they don't feel anything it's it's not it's not a positive experience, it's not a negative experience. It's just numb to their body. and this is the part that when you start inviting people to basically challenge your numbness, they may not be ready for it because that's going to be that was a powerful adaptive reaction that they their body went into to enable them to survive. So now we have to uh rather than saying being numb is bad which what happens happens when we start to go through these evaluations, we have to say being numb is the body's heroic attempt to keep you alive, enable you to function. And when your body can give that up, you'll be ready for other aspects of life. And how does your body give that up? Well, the body has to be convinced that there's safety in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so it needs trusting experiences, trusting people in it. Um, I used to um, – uh, my wife, as I've mentioned earlier before we went on, is a scientist, and my wife is Sue Carter, and she discovered the role that oxytocin plays in social behavior. And we used to give talks together occasionally, and once I remember being on the stage, I said, stood behind her and I said, fall backwards. <laughs> and I said, that's what it's all about.
2: Uh-huh. I, that's did what, did that's, she? It, it, it.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And that, that's what it's all about. It's about your body feeling safe enough to fall backward. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Right. So, and, I, and, I, and I love, you know, like the, the, the narrative of polyvagal, which is that, you know, the, like when you describe it to people, like every statement just makes so much sense. Like the prime directive of every organism is don't get killed.
1: Yeah. And so well, we, it's we all... Just, have... It's not just, you see, that's part of, we're so threat-oriented. Let's change it. The, the prime motivation is to be safe mm. and which is different than not being killed. It's our quest in life is to feel safe. And you can actually ask your clients, is it about removing threat or is it feeling safe? And can mm. they make a distinction? Mm. And We live in a world that is focused on the removal of threat, but safety is more than the removal of threat. Safety is there are cues of trust in the environment, cues that enable you to feel fall backwards. Now, for my wife on the stage, there was no threat. That wasn't the issue. Now, the issue is can you feel safe enough to give up your own control to another person?
2: Mm.
0: All right. But, um, you know, psychologists, evolution, evolutionary psychologists, behavioral economists will point out that given an uncertainty, the better bet is to be safe than yeah. is to be safe than okay. sorry, right? Is to yeah, is, the, is to the, look out for threat that may not come, as opposed to be overly optimistic and get killed.
1: Well, first of all, when you go into the world of evolutionary psychology, it's all based upon evolutionary principles uh, selecting on behavior, and that's an assumption that is probably not correct <laughs> because you can have evolutionary selection on neurophysiological structures that have emergent behavioral properties but the selection pressure was not on the behavior
0: so can okay. you can can you explain that for someone okay so, like me.
1: so so the issue is behavior is a derivative of our neurophysiology and our anatomy okay but the selective pressure is not necessarily on the behavior it can be on the organ, on the, the lower substrates it could be on the ability to oxygenate, the ability to mobilize. We think in terms of in evolutionary psychology, it's about the behavior as being what is selected on.
0: So notice what, what the thing that I do is either going to give me an evolutionary advantage or not. Yeah. And, it turn, but, but and it turns out that the thing that I do might just be some epiphenomenon yeah. that's, yeah. that's that's, that's correlated with something much more fundamental that is actually being selected for. So I'm, I'm just I'm looking at the hood ornament instead of the car.
1: You're getting very close. OK, <laughs> the vocabulary w- wouldn't fail me. I would be able to explain it a little better. But yes, I think we're confused because we see what's observable. We don't see what's under the hood mm-hmm. and the selection can occur on other dimensions. And we're merely seeing the observable behavior. And I think that's a fallacy. And I think it becomes also this whole notion of survival of the fittest, which is really what what you were also talking about. And there's a, a uh, uh, evolutionary biologist by the name of Theodore Dobzinski, And his quote was that really that survival of the fittest was really about those who were the gentlest, those who could connect, those who cooperate. And if we look at the evolution of mammals and their survival, it was because they could uh, socially communicate. They could read each other's autonomic state from vocalizations. They could tell when one was safe to come close to or one was dangerous to come close to. And that enabled them to mate. And they could then develop strategies of cooperation to survive the the real enemy, which were the large reptiles. Mammals were tiny organisms in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So we start seeing the, the evolutionary uh, substrate of why mammals survived and thrived was social communication. And, and the interesting part of it, and this gets into really fun evolutionary talks because one of the, ma- one of the major uh, uh, features that defines a mammal from a reptile is detached middle ear bones. And that means that at the end of the jaw, The little bones break off and they become middle ear bones. And that enabled mammals to communicate in a frequency band that reptiles couldn't hear. Hmm. So That became a way. And then that system, the intonation of vocalizations were from a neural circuit that reflected autonomic state. So vocalizations were conveying to other mammals, whether they were in a mobilized or a calm state. Can I come close to you or should I stay away from you? We still do that. Intuitively when with Mm -hmm. people's voices, but the other thing that happened when the middle ear bones broke off Then the the brain could expand and So we don't know and this is really what I think is a thought question Did the brain expand and those forced the middle ear bones to break off? Or did the middle ear bones break off for the communication and survival that enabled the cortex to expand? So these become examples of not knowing what was the selective pressure, but you can now see the uh, trajectory of different emergent properties of an organism that had detached middle ear bones.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I know we're almost at the hour, but I, since you brought up the middle ear bones, um, I have been regaling my family for the last several days with stories of you know organ music and cathedrals, and an inability to, you know, that, that when you are in a defensive state, you literally don't hear voices yeah. as well. Can we, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I was, sure. I was so interested in this, you know, the Safe and Sound, and if that's available for people to, you know, on an app or somewhere, because it's, it's, oh, it's like sounds okay. so cool and promising.
1: The Safe and Sound protocol is an intervention for people with auditory hypersensitivities, but functionally, it's an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator. That's how it really works. So if I just listen
0: to Johnny Mathis, am I getting more or less the same thing?
1: (laughs) Well, there's a difference between what I would call a prosthesis versus a neural exercise. If you listen to Mm -hmm. Johnny Mathis, you'll get into a state that will make your body feel safe, but it may not, it probably won't develop resilience. Mm -hmm. So, So it will not generalize outwards. The Safe and Sound Protocol is a series of neural exercises in which the demands on the neural feedback of those structures in the middle ear changes uh, session by session. And it's always focusing on the ability to extract uh, functionally what I would call the essence of vocal safety, which is the frequencies of a mother's lullaby or Johnny Mathis. (laughs) Uh-huh. So in other,
0: in other words, every, the, the predominant thing that we have that you hearing has selected for is frequencies of safety and that yeah. all and all the ver, the words are, yeah, are sort of icing.
1: They're, they're icing and less important, except in our culture. Will we keep arguing that it's what I say is important, not how I say it? Our body mm-hmm. says something different. Our body says it's how I speak. It's how the words sound to me that are Mm -hmm. important. It's whether I trust you or whether I want to be near you. It's not as much what you say. And if I feel safe with you, you know what? I'll be able to hear what you're saying better. Mm -hmm. So it becomes now a a compounding of the intonation plus now the content. And so the safe and sound protocol, there's, there's a webpage people can go to. It's the, it's integrated listening systems. And there are now, Over 2,000 therapists delivering it. It's been out there for about two years. There's a Facebook uh, forum page by uh, a mother of a child that was going to be institutionalized, who's now mainstreamed after this. And and in her gratitude for this, she created this uh, forum. And there are, I think, 3,500 families now on it discussing what their experience is. Mm -hmm. And now it's moving into the world of trauma. Uh, And we're, in a sense, revising the uh, training manuals for that to make that so that people are more aware that these cues of safety for a person with a very complex trauma history can literally be associated with vulnerabilities. And that's why, even though in their intentions, their cognitions are they want to be hugged, they want relationships. But when that starts entering into their world, their body retracts and becomes defensive because they don't want to be too close to someone. It's painful. hmm.
0: Gotcha. So, so for me, the two takeaways that I would want my clients to, to have is, that you know, num- number one, long exhales can go a <laughs> long way like it's you know, it's it's a yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And, and this and the second is to break the cycle of being of wrongness and defensiveness. Because I you know, I was coaching someone who was talking about her her food trigger is when she feels a rage. Yeah. And and I was kind of you know, from reading your books, I'm mapping onto probably the rage is a way to get out of collapse.
1: Oh um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's incompatible. Right. As long as she can mobilize, she can't okay. shut down.
0: Right. So we have we have the underlying collapse from some previous trauma. We have yeah. the constant the addiction to rage. Yeah. Rage is not an acceptable emotion most of the time to express. So that gets translated into eating. The okay. eating then gets translated into guilt and shame, which then mm-hmm. fuels the whole cycle all over again. Yeah. So yeah. the, the play, to 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 explain polyvagal theory that the body yeah. is in this state and it it chose all this for you. And now you now you get to do with it. Like you get to you get to not feel bad or so confused yeah. about what's wrong with you.
1: Right. We first stripped the uh, evaluative component away and you become an observer of your own history. And what what I start to I try to figure out what is it that polyvagal theory gives the clinical world? And I realized it shifted the documentary of the human experience from events to feelings. And when we get mm-hmm. locked into events, we start getting very uh, more moralistic. Mm-hmm. We make judgment, so in this case, the documentary of feelings is how the the, the coach and and/ or a therapist or a concerned individual would work it's a respect for that person's feelings, and that's what our role as human beings are for our our friends, our spouses, our children to witness them, to enable them to express those feelings without the sense of guilt or blame or shame. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And I realized that one of the tools that I've been using as a coach, I learned from a teacher of mine, uh, Peter Bregman, he calls it the fast assessment, which is like where there is this moment where something happened, either like you did really good or you disappointed yourself. And the fast stands for what were you feeling? So emotions, yeah. how are you acting? What was the, uh, the, uh, you know, yeah. the the S is sensing in your body, physical sensations and T was thinking. And when yeah. I lead people through this, first of all, there's a tremendous resistance to even do it like oh, another, another one of those. But once people do it, like it removes uh, evaluation and it simply yeah. goes into the phenomenology of the inner experience.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that's very polyvagal and it, you know, it's it's what we what we should be doing. We should be acknowledging our body, learning from it. And when we can, once we get that information, we can be the true leaders of our own bodies that we should be, which means we respect its vulnerabilities and we respect its its true talents and accessibilities.
0: Beautiful. So, for people who want to follow your work, you have uh, you have the the big neuros, you know, the the textbook, the polyvagal theory. You have the pocket guide to make it more accessible. Um, where else can, do you have? Uh, do, do, uh,
1: yeah. My favorite book, though, is an edited book in which uh, over twenty therapists wrote about how they embodied or in use polyvagal theory and what they do. And this, there are people writing who are physicians. Uh, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, play therapists, uh, even a veterinarian,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a nurse. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing how people have taken the ideas and principles and moved it into their own work. It's heavily on trauma, but uh, it's really it was it's one of those things when it was when the book was done. I edited it with a colleague, Deb Dana, who's also written mm-hmm. a book, Polyvagal Theory. I felt uh, it was a wonderful feeling, I, the, both the gratitude to the people writing it and the sense of uh, feeling uh, there's a validation that when your ideas are not only tightly held, but now incorporated in other people's worldviews. So I I like that book. What's uh, it called? It's called Clinical Applications of Polyvagal Theory. It's also published by Norton. And okay. uh, so it would be under Porges and Dana. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, it has, I mean, I, I, I had tears in my eyes by the time I finished reading, reading mm. all this stuff. So. And mm. it has chapters, uh, introductory chapters by Peter Levine, Dessalvandekog, and Pat Ogden, who are trauma therapists who brought me into the world of traumatology because I was the scientist and they were the, the clinicians. And it talks about, they wrote about, literally, it was the invitation of bringing me in because I they gave me the opportunity to try to deconstruct and explain what they were observing. Mm-hmm. And it was was a wonderful journey for me. Um, <sighs> people can also get information on my webpage, and that's stephenporges.com.
0: Okay. Great. All right. Um, yeah, and the, you know, in terms of like the clinical applications for, as I'm thinking for my audience of coaches, I would say the big takeaways that I'm getting are number one um, help your clients see that they are not bad or wrong or broken. Yep. Yep. And number two, uh, re- work on yourself so that you to, to the best of your ability, at least you're, you're clean. And like if you have a reaction to own it, mm-hmm. to say "Oh, yeah. that triggered me as opposed to oh, let me let me hide it. and Maybe they didn't notice because people they notice everything.
1: Yeah, well, it it some so like even if you're a therapist and you look at your watch, that's going to trigger a uh, a reaction in your client. They're going to feel like they're they become invisible. They're not yeah. real. Well, that
0: so that, these... that triggered uh, an election, I think. Right. When uh, I was in 92 in the debate, when George, you know, George Bush looked at his watch mm. like, you know, that nothing that anybody said in that debate was memorable except, oh, he's bored with us
1: yeah well you see the issue is people want to be engaged they really do um mm-hmm. yeah so the coach the therapist and the uh the role is to make the other person feel you're there it's what's called therapeutic presence mm-hmm. and and if you violate that expectancy it's hard to repair it
0: mm. All Right. Well, Dr. Stephen Forges, this has been such a pleasure for me. I have I have felt very connected and engaged and I feel uh, the 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 presence. And I feel like you've beyond the conversation, what, the gift you've given me is to look at my words and be a little bit less evaluative in, in, in some well, of them. I feel like you've 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 shared in several examples of uh, of, of practicing what you preach in terms of not judging, evaluating or calling things wrong?
1: Yeah, you know, well, your presence uh, on, on Skype is also one of engagement. So you, mm. you should have a real good journey in doing what you're doing because the cues come across. And mm. we all know that when people try to uh, manualize interventions, or <laughs> treatments, it doesn't quite work. Because there's a real personal component, and you have wonderful features. So I just want uh, to tell you that I've enjoyed the interaction. You, you must be a remarkably a remarkable uh, coach.
0: Oh well, th- thank you very much. You know, it, it it reminds me of one of one of my favorite half truths, which is Groucho Marx's comment that if you can fake sincerity, you've got it made.
1: I think you've got it. That's <laughs> it. That, that, that's the real take because you really can't. It's an oxymoron. Uh, <laughs>
0: Right. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and thank you for for the body of work that has transformed my life as a professional and has transformed the lives of so many people in in who have been in pain and are finding their ways out. So,
1: well, thank you so much for the kind words. But, you know, we're all on a journey together. And this is this is I would say this is my goal or my mission. And I am really appreciative when it becomes useful to others so thank you all
0: right be well there it is in the can and ready for your consumption i'm so happy to have done this interview to have gotten to know dr porges a little bit and to have been graced by his wisdom and his presence and of course a special shout out to my friend glenn murphy uh, longtime friend of the podcast, multiple podcast guest, who kind of alerted me to polyvagal theory and its importance when I first mentioned it to him, having uh, heard about it in Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. We were going to do this interview together. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't quite work out, but hopefully uh, Glenn will manage to... Uh, Get Dr. Porges on his own podcast, the uh, Systema for Life podcast, which I'm a, a frequent guest and contributor on. So if you're interested in applications of healthy living to broader topics, to things like martial arts, fighting, resilience, you should check us out there. That's again, that's Systema for Life, found everywhere podcasts are found. What else is going on? Uh, I talked about the retreat earlier. I'll just repeat the URL, sick2, that's number two, sick2fit.com slash retreat. That's November 14th through 17th. I talked about coach training, which starts up again in November, wellstartcoach.com. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention, I have openings in my schedule for two new coaching clients, private one-on-one coaching clients. If you're interested, drop me a line, hj at plantyourself.com. Or if you want to look at one of the standardized packages I offer, you can look at plantyourself.com slash laser, L-A-S-E-R, because I call it laser coaching. It's a year of coaching for a a ridiculously reasonable price if you've you've ever priced out one-on-one coaching. And I got to say, I think I'm pretty good. I think I'm a pretty good coach. Um, And so... I'm really proud of the way that I've structured this that can really benefit people without, um, you know, breaking the bank on a monthly basis. All right. So if you love this podcast and you'd like to help us grow, there are several ways to do it. One is to just tell your friends about it and. As uh, Rich Roll taught me, you can just grab a screenshot and post it on your favorite social media and say a couple of words about why you find this valuable. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That is super helpful. And you can become a patron of the show. You can help um, me keep this thing free for everybody in the world who wants to listen to it. Um, by becoming an ongoing monthly contributor. And you can go to patreon.com and just search for Plant Yourself. And as little as a dollar a month makes you a member in good standing. And, you know, at the end, I say everybody's names. I will be happy to breathlessly include yours. All right. What else? Uh, so in garden news, the grapes were a huge disappointment. They never quite got big enough. I went away for a couple of days and came back and they were all the decent ones were gone So something picked them out before me I hope whoever it was You enjoyed them uh, You fed your babies You had a good time And you're doing good in the world Because I was really looking forward to those grapes uh, Finish Finishing up our, our basil harvest Making some pesto Putting it away for the freezer And uh, last week uh, Kathy Hester came over A uh, cookbook author and a culinary wizard extraordinaire and showed us we actually made a a, a chocolate cake w- with the base of one of the winter squash that that is growing in abundance in our garden. So that was that was cool. Thank you, Kathy. If you want to know more about Kathy's stuff, you can check her out at healthyslowcooking.com. And she's got all these different Facebook groups, vegan cooking for the air fryer. And she is wonderful. Okay, what else? Running news. I did hill sprints this morning. I went out there. I did my 13 sprints, five-minute sprints up the hill and eight 45-second sprints up the hill. Slow as shit, but still, my heart rate was up there, and it's a step back. My, my heel's not hurting, so I'm ready to... Uh, to ramp it up. It did not hurt that last night I saw The Game Changers uh, premiere. And, uh, you know, most people, like, are supposed to go to that and, like, be be inspired to eat better. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm eating better than almost all of the people in that movie. Like, you know, the the Tennessee Titans and, and Patrick Baboumian are are eating, you know, like, burger plant-based burgers and pizza and, and fried buffalo things. I'm like, yeah, no thanks. But, Tim, I want to work out better, especially uh, watching James Wilkes the the kind of the star and director of the or, uh, I guess producer of the movie um, working these these uh, these ropes and also Dotsie Bausch uh, who is such a badass and I, you know I could almost not watch her event this sort of like cycling around these uh, ramped uh, beveled corners going really close to her teammates I was just terrified of of them like you know link, linking uh, chains and pedals and just all crashing down. Incredible uh feat of of concentration and strength and and all sorts of skill to be able to do that. I want to see if I can get Dotsie on the podcast. The other person from the game changers that I really want to get on the podcast is Charity Morgan, the um the person who's feeding the Tennessee Titans all this uh amazing food. But you know, just just watching everybody, I just wanted to go out and, and do some badassery. So I, I got my old uh, Monkey Bar Gym bands and equipment out of the garage. Got my my power wheel out. Long time ago, I interviewed John Hines, who's the founder of the Monkey Bar Gym, which was the first plant based gym chain. It also had no machines, no mirrors, just sort of functional stuff: bands, balls. Um, kettlebells And a lot of partner work So really innovative stuff So I pulled some of that out And uh, in my mind Played the Rocky soundtrack And uh, so let's see How uh, how healthy and strong And, and, and buff and, and durable i become Alright, thanks to Will Ridenhour For allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace As the theme music for this show And check out WillReidenauer.com For more and of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Let's see if my, uh, my morning's workout, tough workout, has improved or um, compromised my uh, VO2 max here. Jim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, and Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barb Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Havley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennedy, Melissa, Cobb Rachel, Brands, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Bolkonovsky, David Bizak, the Mysterious, Michelle XL, Spith Theldon Victoria, Dola Manova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colling Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Roland, Dolnik, Sarah Durkas, Franza Circus, Kelly, Cameron, Wayne, Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Ned Benam, Sarah David Dani, Cyber Cybert, Doran Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann <laughs> Misha Rosen, Michael Warabek, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rise with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Berg, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Berry, Heather Morgan, Master Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, the Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Shell Rutledge, Julia Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegard, Izutu, Susan Watkins, Connie Hayline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis of Vivallel, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Moranic Joe Crabtree, Street. Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Baker Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divich, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Byrd, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnae Lanquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casia, Emily Akinelli, Levi Levy Rosamund Rosamond Emma Corny, Stephen Lienan, Patty DiMartino, Martino, Mike and Donna Carts, Bill, Bilber- Bishop, Billbury, Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trish Adams, Ian Craner, Esther Sheldon, Lindsay Bacher, Gunbury Hagen, Tracy Gulles, Laura Heaton, Meg Roman Laser, Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diane Goldman. <laughs> Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael K., Holly Butler, and David Hughes for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love and that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit, send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com gift. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barron's, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Air Adams, Frank Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gail David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Gio and Carol Argetati, Jody Friesner with Anne Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck... The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva L-, 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 L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Leman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Pandivigan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marian Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Eza Tuzu Wakani e. Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linane Lundquist, Valerie Humble, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McIntyre, McCourney, Stephen Lennon, Teddy Di Martino, Mike and Donna Carson, Diane Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Basher, Gun marie Hagen, Tracy Gullish, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parm Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Siderowska, Alison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.